Hello and welcome to yet another value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have on for the third time, one of my favorite guests, one of the people's favorite guests, my friend, Randy Barron. Randy, how's it going? Andrew, how are you? Doing good, doing good. You know, I, as I was saying that, I was just thinking like, I can't believe Rand, uh, Jacob Rubin's the one who introduced us, I think. And, you know, I can't believe we formed a friendship. It's the power of the podcast. But uh, well, let me the, start the, the, what, what you refer to as the yet other value empire, which I always laugh when you write about that, um, is really amazing, right? And I have this broader theory that like everyone knows Buffett and Munger and like the next generation was like a belly and all that. But like after that, these guys in their 70s, Lee Cooperman, all of them, like there is no great known kind of investor class. And what you've kind of created here in a format, uh, even if Jeremy Raper gets disproportionate representation, um, it's kind of the next generation of up and coming thinkers, right? I mean, we all look for these idiosyncratic things where we say, you know what, active management has a future, the market's offsides. And let me tell you why I think the market's wrong. And that's a pretty brave thing to be the point of the spear. So thanks for letting me come back on again. Hey, no, look, I appreciate that. And that's the thing, the the people who want to do, hopefully people know this podcast as people come on, they do deep dive, serious work. And the fact is they're just, the people who love it, do it and they love it, but there aren't that many of us left. And it's just fun to be able to connect with so many of them. But uh, let, let me start this podcast after that. Let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a disclaimer to remind everyone, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. We'll be talking about a Chinese ADR today. So people should, you know, nothing on this podcast is ever investing advice, but that carries an extra level of risk. So people should just be aware of that. And then a second with the pitch for you, my guess, you know, third time on at this point, I don't feel like I have to pitch, but Randy is anyone who's listened to the first two podcasts knows Randy's a super thoughtful guy. And I, I think this podcast is going to be great. That's why he's one of the people's favorite guests. So that all out the way, I think we're going to do a bonus episode with a little bit of update on some prior ideas later that post later. So people can look for that. But the stock we're going to talk about today is GDS. This is a Chinese data center company, but I, I shouldn't say anything else. I'm just going to turn it over to you. What is GDS and why are we so interested in them? Okay. Um, GDS Holdings trades on the NASDAQ under the symbol GDS. Uh, it also trades on Hong Kong, and that's going to be important. We'll come back to that in a minute under the symbol uh, 9698. GDS is the largest carrier neutral data center in China. It's also, in my opinion, the best run data center in the world. And certainly in the public comps, it's the fastest growing data center in the world. It's EBITDA margins are best in class. And quietly, it's begun expanding to the south and to the east from this kind of position of China uh, history. Uh, yet. Despite all of that, it trades today at 10 turns of EBITDA less than its industry peers, despite being the fastest growing, despite being the best. And, and for a lot of reasons we'll get into, which involving you know, the political backdrop, the macroeconomic stuff that's happening in Russia. Um, but I thought what would be really useful kind of before we dive into the nuances is to take a step back for those in your audience who may not know what a data center is. Yep. I think that's great. I could use a refresher, to be honest. So that's perfect. So, Well, it's interesting. I came to data centers initially. So, okay. The first two podcasts you mentioned, one was on synthetic biology. One was on a healthcare name called Renalytics. Uh, both have great updates, which we'll do later. But what's fascinating is that the dirty little secret that I don't really brag about is that I'm a former and reformed telecom analyst. So for the first 10 plus years of my life, I was in the TMT land that 
you know, when you write your charter stuff, it catches my eye. I said, I, I know this language. You know, I don't know if I knew that about you, Randy. I'm surprised. I don't, you didn't... I don't, I don't, I don't brag about it. I keep it kind of close to the vest. When I was thinking about buying Altice at 30 last summer, you couldn't have parachuted in and said, Andrew, you're, come on. I followed this forever. The, those guys are awful. Well, and it makes stuff like Netflix, which reported last night, really kind of fun to watch. Like, you know, enough to be dangerous. But I first kind of got introduced to the space, uh, maybe 12 uh, data center space, 10 or 12 years ago. When a company out of Cincinnati, Cincinnati Bell, bought Cirrus One. And at that yep. stage, like none of us kind of knew what data centers were. So what is a data center? A data center can be thought of as the brains of the internet, right? The, the role of these buildings is to process, store, and communicate the data behind the myriad information services we use every day. All the stuff that the yet another value empire kind of is about, right? Uh, social media, online collaboration, emails, your streaming video. You got to think about these buildings. They've got racks of servers, right? Which deal with the kind of computational logic response to like requests. And you've got storage drives that house the files and the data that is needed for those requests. You have network devices that connect that data center to the internet, both for enabling inbound and outbound files. And then you have a ton of electricity, uh, which generates a lot of heat. So you need something to deal with the cooling often or just a way to offload the heat. Uh, it's useful to think of a data center like a hotel, right? Data centers make money by leasing power and by leasing space. And, and to some degree, it's a, a very virtuous cycle yep. where the ecosystem that it's in determines the price. In other words, the more carriers, the more networks that are present, um, the more valuable it becomes to have connectivity or what they call co-location in that data center. And therefore it costs more to lease space in the more successful uh, data centers. Uh, anecdotally, I, I often think about, and, and I know this is a bit macabre, but I think about like terrorism, right? Like if, if Al-Qaeda was to strike again, what's the best target? That it, and, and none of us know it's a black swan event, hopefully. But I often think, because you and I both know you can give up food for a couple of days or weeks, but you know what we can't give up? Twitter for two seconds. <laughs> this thing right here, right? And like, we can't give up our phones. Like if the federalists want to find you, it used to be they track your cable address. That's actually how they would track you, the FBI. Now they track your mobile phone. And so my point is, when you go to these buildings, you got to imagine these huge multi-football field-sized warehouses with no branding on the side because they're trying to keep it, you know, you go to Secaucus, you can see them. There are these huge white buildings. And to get into them, is tougher than getting to the Pentagon. And when you walk down the bays, they're maybe you know, 150, 200 foot tall. They have big trays up in the sky that have in the US, it's a little different in China, we'll get to that. But in the US, you've got copper on one tray and then above that, you've got fiber. And because of um, the legacy of AT&T here in the US, ever since Ma Bell broke up in the 80s, you know, you had all the competitive local exchange carriers, the rural local exchange carriers. You had 300, 400 different phone companies funneling their phone uh, cable, whether it was fiber or copper, into this warehouse called a data center. And then in the data center, you have cages. So when people say, what is the internet? Data centers are where the internet physically connects. You have the Netflix cage near the AWS cage, near the Facebook cage. And from those servers, they go up into those trays I talked about and go down to the next um, bay or the next window. So that's kind of a little primer on 
what a data center is and why it matters. Uh, can I host- can I just add one thing in there, Randy? It, it, I think that was great. And I think the one thing that we'll come back to that I think makes sense, if I remember correctly, there is a little bit of a network effect where you mentioned the network trays next, the Netflix trays next to the Google trays. And I think there is a little bit of a network effect, if I remember correctly, because what's going to happen is Netflix and Google might want to connect their trays. So if you're a data center that has Google, the Netflix kind of wants to be in you, again, co-location because they can connect to that. Whereas if you're a small startup data center, you get a little bit of a chicken or the egg problem where Netflix says, why would I, at least with you, like I can't connect to Google, Facebook, Charter, AT&T. I'll just go connect Equinix, I believe is the biggest player in the US. I'll just go use Equinix because they've already got everyone else that I want to connect to. So you get this really nice network effect where everyone's at your location. So everyone wants to be at your location. So everyone comes to your location. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yes. And I want to take it one step further, which is there's a word um, called hyperscale. Yeah. These are the major, you just mentioned a lot of them, but add Alibaba to the list, AWS, Microsoft, like there's about 20, 24 of these hyperscale players in the world. And that just referred to, uh, I think I've used it before with you, you know, infinity is a place that's so far away from any farther, it wouldn't really matter. The idea that such computational power comes with mass, right? But what that also neglects is kind of not the hyperscale player, but let's just call the microscale players, the guys that are looking to kind of come up and nudge into that framework. They're going to want to come to the place where the hyperscalers terminate. And they want yep. to co-locate. And the best example that you can give in the U.S. is Netflix, uh, which was on AWS and still is, but over time wants to control more of its own destiny. So all of a sudden starts doing more and more of its own data centers. And I think yep. that's a really revealing um, revelation. China, uh, and, and we'll come to my history at GDS in a minute, is a little different uh, because... Uh, <coughs> you didn't have all the diversity after the Ma Bell breakup. In other words, you didn't have 300 different phone companies, which have since been rolled up in the U.S. So when you go to those data centers, you essentially have fiber coming. You skipped a big part of that copper uh, interface, so much so that that company I mentioned, Cirrus One, which was the purchase data center from CBB, from Cincinnati Bell, maybe five or six years ago, and, and no longer has it, did a minority investment into GDS because GDS at that point was gen- not, not a true biblical seven-year generation, but generationally lowercase g ahead for what they were doing with their data center campuses. Um, I think that's really revealing. The other thing in China, of course, worth noting is that 50% of the data center market in China is the incumbent. So it's China Telecom, it's Unicom, it's a little bit China Mobile. And then there's 50% of what I, again, described as carrier neutral data centers. In other words, they don't care if the phone company is. Um, GDS is 30% of that other bucket. So call it 15% of the total China market is GDS. Perfect. So I think we've done a nice job framing what a data center is. I, I don't, we can obviously add on to background on the data center if you want, but if you're ready, why don't we switch over to, we've covered the industry. So let's switch over to GDS in particular and your background okay. with them. So let me, let me start, if you don't mind, with a little history in terms of how I got to know GDS, because I think it's revealing. Um, GDS, and now we're only talking the US listing. They did their Hong Kong listing at the end of 2020, but for the sake of this history, let's go back to 20. Uh, 16, when they IPO'd at $10 in ADS. And by the way, for your audience, ADS or ADR is American Depository Receipt. It's a essentially US vehicle to own a foreign stock, very common. Um, 
this was, and, and I, I was laughing when I referred earlier to our friend Jacob, uh, to Jacob, but also Jeremy Raper, uh, all three of us kind of look for idiosyncratic ideas, right? And I had a phone call from the RBC analyst as a friend, John Atkin, the TMT analyst, who said, Randy, I got one for you to look at. It. And every, every once in a while, I get that call. And, you know, more often than not, it's a wild goose chase, but sometimes it really works out. And at that point, this $10 IPO was a broken IPO. It was trading at $7. No one wanted to own anything uh, in China. That's right around the time that BABA is starting to get build traction, but it's a little before them and uh, in the US market. And I went to lunch and I met these guys, the CEO, William, who's the founder, still owns five or 6%. And the CFO, Dan Newman, who's one of my favorite CFOs in the business. And if I tell you the mood of the table, it was lamentation. It was pure sadness. Why does the market not realize what we are doing? And at that point, people forget this about China. The cloud did not start in China until 2014. So at that point, 2016, we're talking, China was basically 2% of its total IT spend was on the cloud. It's double digits now, but like that's part of the argument, which is they're growing. And so therefore, the two main customers that GDS had were Alibaba and Tencent. Two-thirds of the revenue were those two hyperscale players, to use the term we just introduced. And what was fascinating was this relationship with Alibaba, which continues through today. And as part of the thesis, it's why I love it, which was if Alibaba was going to grow, GDS was the contracted data center to grow with them. So if you believed that the data, that the internet in China was going to have a future, this was a very, very easy way to play it. And by the way, because of the way that those contracts were structured, you could pencil out the PL three or four years and pencil in 50, five, 0% growth top line with EBITDA margins at that point in the 20% going up to what they are now, 50%. So I sat there and I was like, guys, if you just cover the company, cover the geography, which is part of my process, right? Like I'm totally agnostic to geography. I'm just looking for great ideas. I said, guys, don't lament. This is a wonderful opportunity. Buy more shares. And they did. They bought more shares personally. Like I said, William, the founder, now 6% owner of this multi-billion dollar enterprise, the market cap for your audience in US dollars, five and a half billion dollars, another four or five billion of debt, 10 billion enterprise value. So I sat there and went in, went back to my office with my team and we kind of did the work. And I was like, this is amazing. We're going to go and became a top three position for us. We bought it about $9 a share. And then by the end of 2017, had sold it, had doubled. It was a win. It was great. But as you and I know, in this business, relationships matter, right? And so even though we were out of the stock at that point, we had maintained a dialogue. And I remember I'm at a lunch. This is in the end of July, 2018. And all of a sudden I get like the flashing, like, you know, the bat phone goes on, you know, get to the office type thing. And there was a new, at that point, nascent hedge fund called Blue Orca, still around a short uh, selling fund. Yep. Put out a 50 page short thesis on GDS. It was actually, in retrospect, the best executed short thesis I've ever seen because they did it in the afternoon, which was kind of middle of the night morning time in China and Shanghai. And, the, and at that point, there's 25 publishing analysts today, but at that point there was four or five. Frank Louthan was in, who's the Raymond James guy, was in the Unity courtroom in Virginia or DC. John Atkin, I mentioned, was in Australia on a plane home. No one in China could respond. And in the period of three hours, the stock lost 47% of its value, lost almost $2 billion. It was, it was one of the best executed 
And actually, Bill Alpert and Barron's talked about it. This was like the best debut of a short thesis ever. And part of the reason, by the way, this goes back to knowing infrastructure, was in the report on like the fifth or sixth page, they had kind of one of those surreptitious shots from the hip of a cage that had wires hanging out of it, basically inferring fraud. This is LinkedIn coffee. This is fraud. You need to run. Well, you and I know as apartment dwellers that it doesn't matter if you're in the apartment or not. You got to pay for that apartment, buy, rent, whatever. You got to pay for it. And so in the case of GDS, because we know data centers, I don't care if those cages are occupied or not. I know they're being paid for the cage. So whatever the technician may be doing there doesn't matter, but it paints a really you know, poignant picture for the short. Anyway, we went back in in a real way um, in the low 20s. The stock had dropped that day from 40 to 20. And then we wrote it up uh, for the next three years. Uh, we exited uh, in the COVID year 2020 at 80. The stock last year, February, so 2021 hit $114 a share. And then when you and I started talking about it last November, November, was, yep. that's when the macro, you know, the China regulatory landscape, all the stuff we'll talk about today had uh, begun to shift. Uh, and then in February of this year, when um, Russia invaded Ukraine and the inference was, is this World War III? In other words, is China going to take this moment to seize Taiwan and make the land grab, which would effectively become World War III? Uh, all of the China internet stocks got hit and we were able to really build this. So now this is a top three position for us. You know, the other two, they've been podcasted um, about 7% of the book. We're going to need you to get a couple new positions on so that we, we've got future podcasts, but that's great. Uh, there's lots of places I want to dig in there. I, I think listeners probably, you know, you know, from my notes, you can, you can tell, tell where I'm going to start. But first question I'm trying to ask going forward after we've got the background and everything, uh, you know, the, GDS, the stock, as I look, it's down, you mentioned it's down a lot over the past year, you know, probably 60% or so over the past year, a little bit more from its peak in kind of the November timeframe, or no, not the peak from probably in the October timeframe. But, uh, you know, the market's down 67%. Uh, it's still got a, a pretty high multiple, you know, I think it's around 16 times EBITDA, which isn't crazy for a data center, but it's not super cheap. But when you look at the stock, top three position for you. What do you see that you think the market is missing where, you know, top three position, you obviously think it's going to generate risk adjusted alpha. What are you seeing that the market's missing? Well, I want to, I want to uh, disagree with one sentence you slipped in there. And this is, this is very like, you know, Andrew Walker, he's a smiley guy, gets it in there. But you, the one sentence I don't agree with you is uh, the data centers at 16 times is expensive. So I'm going to give you a little bit of statistics, um, which I wrote out. So forgive that. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it's relevant. And I'm going to give you some the, the three most recent public transaction multiples. Okay, because the argument I'm making here is, guys, we know stuff's going on in China, right? There should be a country risk discount. Absolutely. What I'm arguing is it shouldn't be ten points. So June of 24, Blackstone acquired QTS Realty Trust. 26 times EBITDA. That's treating CapEx as debt, but 26 times EBITDA. Cirrus One, that company we mentioned, the spinoff from CBB, uh, KKR, Global Infrastructure Partners, acquiring them for 23 times 2022 EBITDA. Corsite, acquired from American Tower, 27 times 22 EBITDA. And Switch, which is the latest one that's rumored to be uh, the next one to go, is trading at 26 times today. 
right? Uh, I can look at my grid here. You mentioned Equinix, so I should just probably bring that up as well. And Equinix is um, trading today at 24 times, right? Yeah. So just to give you some frame of reference, I want to finish framing that out. Hold on one second. Just going back, the percent change in revenue, this is really relevant because GDS today is trading at under 15 times, okay? I mentioned QTS acquired, year-on-year -year revenue growth, 12%, 55% EBITDA margins. Cirrus 1, 8%, high single digits, revenue growth, 48% EBITDA margins. Corsite, 8%. Again, the, the point is top line growth, high single digits. GDS, this year is its low year for all the reasons we're going to talk about, including COVID, 21%, 22% this year, historically 30 to 40% top line growth with the same EBITDA profile, 51%. No, look, I, I agree with you. I guess in my 16X EBITDA, like, look, with Charter, I've been saying since the stock was at 12 times, you know, I was like, this is too cheap. Go find me a cable company that's been taken out for 15, for less than 15 times EBITDA in the past uh, five years or something, you know? And the stock's gone from 12 to 10 and people have been saying, oh, it's expensive. Say, no, versus every other deal I can find, it's actually cheap. It might look expensive versus you know, a, a retailer trading at two times EBITDA. But so my 16X was more in the absolute sense, but I, I am 100% with you. Like one of the key theses is with data centers and everything, and we'll probably get into this a little bit more as well, is these are extremely popular infrastructure plays, right? When debt is at two or 3%, go buy a data center. You can put tons of debt on it. It's going to grow and, and you get double leverage on it. So I, I'm definitely with you. There, well, and even on that just point, even myself. in this uh, increasing rate environment on the private side, and by the way, the private multiples are even higher than the public multiples, call it 30 plus. Yet cap rates right now, last week, 4%. So the point is like, you can still do a lot of that. And in fact, another metric um, that they use for the space is growth adjusted EBITDA. So yep. it's essentially the same concept of a peg ratio, which is, PE adjusted for growth of EPS over time. And because a lot of the companies you talked about, Charter included, you, you don't use PE, you use EV to EBITDA, right? Because the depreciation in there and throws off the math. But if you look at the kind of, so enterprise value divided by EBITDA divided by growth in EBITDA, you know, GDS today is at one, 1.1 times. The US peers, two and a half to four and a half times. Yep. So that, that, that point that you just said about Charter is important. But my point is you don't get this kind of growth with, by the way, 70% of their revenue in the backlog. So I can add 70% yep. to revenue just in converting backlog. And churn in a data center, we probably should have led with this, is nil. Because to what we were saying, the network effect before, once you're in, yes, you may need to replace a server, right? Things wear out over time, et cetera. Um, but you don't, you don't give up your footprint. You add to it over time. And the, you know, theoretically, the thesis basically boils down to, are you going to have more internet usage or not? Is AI yep. going to have more or not? Uh, the great example I can give you in China, I remember reading the New York Times maybe two or three months ago, they talked about how COVID in China and what they call the, the health code has created this techno-authoritarian tool, meaning they used to know location data from your phone, but now because you need to proactively put in more data they have even more and more data tracking you. And, you know, zero COVID policy, you could have a whole political conversation of if that's sound or not from an epidemiological perspective. Uh, but the idea is, you know, I'm of the opinion that we're going to use more and more data over time. And especially like we said before, 
The cloud in China is still in its nascent days. It is going to surpass the U.S. over time. We're just still in the kind of call it third inning of that. So let me just go back to the question. So I, I, again, I am with you on the the valuation, everything, but I, I just want to go back to the question today. You know, the stock's down sixty percent. Obviously, you think this valuable. Like, what do you think the market is most missing when you look at the stock? Do you think the market? It, there are lots of options. A, a few could be the market is over discounting the China risk here. Uh, the market is there's concern on financing, and we'll probably talk about that later. The market's too concerned about the financing needs of the business, all sorts of other ones. But what do you think like your biggest variant perception on the stock versus the market is? So I think the issue is the market is viewing today, and by the way, this is not just China. I, I think a lot of the market has thrown out growth altogether yep. and said, you know, interest rates are going up, growth is dead. I don't agree with that. And that's a whole different conversation we could have. But in the case of the China data centers, and by the way, there are three, uh, Chin Data is one, Simple CD, uh, 21 Binet, which we'll talk about how to bid, uh, BNET is the ticker, and GDS. Um, the market has basically said there is a structural issue with these companies. And that's what I disagree with. What's happening with GDS today is we are at a cyclical low, which happens in infrastructure companies. Then you kind of just flavor it a little bit with COVID and, oh, maybe add a little bit of geopolitical Russia backing, you know, saying what's going to happen with China. And don't forget that ever since the education stuff in the summer of last year, the regulatory regime in China has made it so that today the rate of growth of internet companies in China is the slowest it's been, despite the fact that the Chinese government, at least in its words, is saying we're trying to support a digital economy. Like that, never the two shall meet, right? We can't keep, stop having internet companies, stop them from growing in China and also say we want to be a digital company in the future. And I think that's going to resolve itself over time. I clearly don't know when COVID is going to resolve. Right now, today, we're recording this in April of 2022. There are people in GDS data centers who are sleeping in cots in the data center. They're not leaving. Zero COVID policy. They're not letting it in. And that's wonderful because it keeps it going, but it's also very revealing that we're not in normal times. I don't know when Russia comes to its senses over Ukraine. I'm hopeful, but I'm, I don't know. So what I'm saying is that we may have one, two, three quarters of slower growth. By the way, slower growth is still 20%. Let's yep. just be clear on that. It's not 40, it's 20. I'm saying that as I look for, for ideas that are going to compound over time, and I guess this is a, this goes back to the Amaris and Relix thing, but I don't, you only care about price if you're selling at a given moment, right? Otherwise, it's a great buying opportunity and you're looking for things almost like a private investor in public form, private equity investor. You're looking for things that are going to compound generationally. And I don't want anyone to leave this podcast. Often I feel when any of us get up and put our hands up, you know, we get slapped for, oh, you're talking your book or, oh, you know, you're pumping a stock. I honestly, today is the 20th of, of April. I don't care what the price is on the 21st. I may care at the end of the month when I get marked to market. I may care at the end of the quarter, honestly. But truthfully, generationally, what do I care? Where is it three, five years from now? That's how I try to have a worldview. And, and I do believe that three, five years from now, all these issues we should talk about, the ADR delisting, you know, China COVID, I think it gets resolved over time. And I, my broader thesis, and this is a long-winded answer to your question. No, love it. That A, China has an internet in the future, and B, specific to why do I think this is misvalued? I'll, I'll come back to this at the end. This is an excellent management with a founder-led company, great track record. 
uh, focused on execution, got great relations with the customers. Alibaba loves them, has them build stuff. So that's super important. Um, they've had STT, so the Singapore Telecom guys have come in, which are the among the toughest due diligence uh, investors in the telecom space and have owned, owned 32% of the company. I mean, that, that they've clearly said what we want to have be our China data center play. Um, that's all positive. We've got a huge customer base and ways to grow in multiple ways, including the fact that they are just now entering Singapore and leaving China. So up till this point in the narrative, it has been a 100% intra-China story. And what I'm saying is what we're not picking up on, you mentioned Equinix, is this could become the next Equinix, but it's just coming from a different geography. So it kind of gets dismissed because it's not in the Occidental world. That's perfect. That's great. Let me, this is a smaller point in the overall thesis, but it, it was something that was curious to me. You know, uh, most Chinese companies that I look at, tech companies, don't really have a lot of success outside of China because in China, they're they're basically behind the wall, right? China's not going to let anyone else compete with them. I, I'm sure Google would dominate in China if Google was allowed to really run a search engine in China, but the fact is they're simply not. Uh, the only Chinese internet company that I can think of that really had success outside of China is TikTok. So they're right now, I think it's two countries, it's Singapore and one other country who's escaping me, but they're in the process of expanding, really expanding outside of China for the first time. And, you know, I don't think it makes a huge difference to the downside of the story, but it could impact the upside where I look at that and I say, hey, did they only really win in China because they had that protection and they were, you know, they're they're really in a no competition zone? Or do you really think these guys are operationally at a point where they could go to a, a different country and kind of win despite I haven't seen it a lot from Chinese companies doing that in the past? Okay, a couple of things to unpack there. It's not just China that stops tech companies coming in. That's and there's a company, there's a company in Russia called the Index which is effectively the Google of Russia and beat Uber out because Uber wasn't allowed to come in. Um, another uh, podcast guest of yours, Adam Lindsay, who came on and did TripAdvisor, he went through the bond indentures. And it turns out that there was in the Yandex paper, if you didn't list for five days, it was never disclosed in a 20F. It was just in the bond indenture. If you didn't publicly have a stock for five days, you got to claim the debt. I mean, it was like crazy stuff is happening in the world. So I don't, I don't want us to say this is just China. There's other countries that don't allow tech companies in. Yeah, yeah. Um, to your geographic point, let, let's, let me get there, but let's start with where is GDS today? Okay? okay. GDS is in only tier one cities. About 65% of the countries, and it's not just GDS, 65% of the country's data centers are on the East Coast. So just kind of coming down the East Coast, you've got the Yangtze River Delta, that's Beijing, basically. That's one. Shanghai is two. The uh, West Pearl River Corridor, so think Hong Kong, Macau in the South, that's the third major area. And by the way, when I say those cities, they're also in like 150 to 200 kilometers, so about 90 miles in radius yep. around that. So I'm just using these because we would know these major cities. And then the fourth market, uh, in the middle of the country is uh, Chengyu and, and Chengqing, which are two 20 to $30 million, 20 to $30 million population centers. And that's kind of all these tier one cities are at. What's changed in the story since I first invested in it five years ago is today they are expanding to uh, Singapore. So if you look at, again, the map of China, you go south, there's Thailand, Vietnam, I'm working my way down, Malaysia, which is one of the countries they're in. 
and Singapore, the little dot island there the size of like Chicago, right? And then Indonesia, the island archipelago below it. Um, Singapore has a moratorium. Again, small island, not a lot of space, moratorium on data centers right now. Uh, they are putting to bid a 60 megahertz deal that there's going to be a category that if you don't have a data center in Singapore, you're allowed to come in. But short of that, the way that GDS is positioning it is from Malaysia on the southern shore and from Indonesia, which is a little bit more like uh, our Alaska, you know, they're coming in. You can see it from Singapore across a bridge or across a ferry ride across the bay. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that this is option value, but I think it also goes to speak that they are going where their customers are asking them to go, right? So Alibaba and kind of that hyperscaler we talked about is the one that said, hey, let's go to Singapore. And GDS is so committed to this idea of going outside of China that their COO, Jamie, is now based in Singapore. I mean, they're very, very fully committed. So then the question becomes, I mentioned STT, is a 30% owner. Well, they've got data center assets in Thailand, Vietnam. Is there something over time where GDS maybe combines assets, does a merger, joins a joint venture? I mean, these guys are wonderful capital allocators and we'll get into the economics of their kind of per unit data center. But um, I think Singapore is the canary in the coal mine that you're going to start seeing this Chinese company start moving. And by the way, not a surprise. If you talk to people in Hong Kong today with the crackdown of the PRC in Hong Kong, there's no free press right now in Hong Kong uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, a lot of people are choosing to exit, especially in the business community, to go to the Singapore to go. So my point is you will find the next global city of the future, but it's not going to be Equinix. It's going to be someone that has a relationship with the local cloud players like GDS. Let, let me ask you a quick question. So it, you, my experience with this, I, I was looking at a company, Internap, a couple of years ago. I'm trying to find the book, but I, I read a book about uh, data centers and the history and everything there, which was very interesting. But, you know, if I was somebody who hadn't looked at a data center before, I think my question would be, it's all the Internet, right? So, you know, one of one of GDS's claims is, hey, we've got these great data centers in tier one city, Shanghai. You mentioned them all, but they say it's really hard at this point, maybe impossible to go find enough land in a suitable location to build a data center in a tier one city. And I do think somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience here would say, why does that matter? Why can't I build a, a thousand miles from a tier one city, build a data center, and we'll just lay fiber connecting it from a thousand miles to the city and, you know, it'll be a lot cheaper because it's a thousand miles from the city lands much cheaper and everything. So why, why does being able to build and why does being able to geographically expand like this? Why does that matter? Um, and because you mentioned INAP, which is dangerous when you drop that kind of stuff, we're going to talk about why data center only matters because INAP's a little closer to like VNet and some of the other players in that they had managed hosting as well. GDS is a pure play data center, which is really important. The, uh, the book I read, by the way, just for anyone who's interested, it's called Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. I'll, I'll include a link in the show note if everyone's interested, yeah. but sorry. And, and, but I think you've touched on a really, really important thing, which is latency matters and specifically low latency. In our business, you would say high frequency trading, right? The yep. reason the data centers in Secaucus is that Wall Street is, you know, as a crow flies, whatever that is, five miles, six miles. And so just the more distance you put in, the more latency you put into the network. And if you're a CTO at a company that's especially trying to build your own cloud, uh, you don't want latency. It's as simple as that. It's a redundancy. Uh, real estate in the core cities has gotten very expensive. 
And, and in the case of China, because they're still, I mean, we, it's kind of like we talk about the environmental issues of the world. Well, guess what? China uses coal and the price of thermal coal was up at 1.40% last year. I think it closed the year up 20%, but the cost to generate power was totally skewed from what all these companies needed. And, you know, as you go more and more towards cities, I remember before the Olympics, you know, they shut down all the factories because they didn't want pollution. Well, the reason is because that's the burning coal, right? And so what's fascinating in the case of GDS to that story is A, they have enough power quotas for the rest of their build. I mentioned the 70% backlog, they're fine, but it's a moat because if, to your point, if someone came and said, oh, why can't you just build? You can't just show up in China and build a data center without power, right? These are massive, massive warehouses, maybe instead of the Cummins or Caterpillar equipment, it's the Chinese equivalent, right, of the generator, but you need power, you need to be on the grid. And that's where China's regulating to say, hey, and like I said, in, in Singapore, total moratorium, right? So I think uh, GDS is in a pretty good place in that regard. And I want to also mention, because I do think, and I feel like every time we do one of these, we talk about socially responsible investing or environmental and social governance, ESG concerns. Uh, GDS today is 30% renewable power. So they're taking, to your point, power generated in the West through wind, through solar, um, and they're piping it in to do their data centers. Equinix is a leader in this. I want to totally tip my hat. I think 80% of their global numbers renewable. That's wonderful. Uh, others like DLR, 20 something percent. So GDS, again, as I'm, as I'm positing it within the peer group, understands, and this is their goal, by 2030, they want to be carbon neutral. And they're doing this ahead of their customers. So the internet companies haven't come yet and said, oh, we need to be carbon neutral, but they see the writing on the wall. And again, these guys... They stay a vision. They totally see it. They say, we want to do what's right for the world. And, and by the way, if you're an internet company, and this is not specific to China, although it is the case here, 60 to 70% of your power usage as an internet company is your data center. So if you can cut that to be carbon neutral, we've done a good thing for the planet. And I don't think that should be buried. Well, and it's not just a good thing for the planet, but you're seeing it right now, right? Like, Nat gas prices. A year ago, you and I would have been talking and Nat gas would have been priced at $3 per MMBTU or whatever it is. And today, as we're talking, this is domestically, it's way worse in Europe. You know, it would be seven or eight dollars per MMBTU. And you know, if you're a data center and nat, your power is getting supplied by a Nat gas plant, guess what? Your your power cost just tripled. Whereas solar, yeah, it only runs during the day, but a lot of the renewables, at least once you do that fixed cost of getting them installed, you're no longer kind of Subject to the whimsitude, the the whimsitude. You're no longer subject the to the, the isolations yeah, in the power whimsy. prices. So it, you know, not only is it an ESG thing, I think it's just a smart business thing to say, hey, we can get a lot of our power locked up at basically no cost and have good visibility into getting power. And, and by the way, shame on us. Before the podcast, we were talking about writing our letters, our quarterly letters. Like neither you nor I have like you know uh, exploration companies and oil and gas. Like it's been a total win, right? Since Russia invaded Ukraine. But that's, for me, a very conscious decision. I want to, I, every time I come on, I feel like we talk about this, but I want to invest in things that are going to leave the world a better place for my kids. And I don't mean that as like, oh, I'm a woohoo SRI guy. Like, that's not my North Star, but just the idea of you want to back ideas that are constructive and you want to back companies that have the same ethos and vision that they see that this is a change that you can make. I think it's wonderful. 
That's generally what I do, though. I do have one one oil and gas company. It's uh, Amplify Energy, who had the oil spill off the coast of California, which was not their fault. But I felt bad when you were saying that because I was like, "Oh, Randy says this," and of course, I own an oil spill company, but neither here nor there. And, and you can refer to that podcast. I listened to that one too. So. Tim Tim's great. I I love Tim. But uh, let's talk. So GDS, another another thing. They they say, "Hey, they're very clear." M&A, they want to grow, right? And one of the ways they want to grow is M&A. And I want to talk about M&A in two forms. A, is there M&A out there for them at this point? Because you mentioned how most of the market is controlled by either China Telecom or they control a big piece of the non-China Telecom market. So is there kind of a creative bolt-on M&A for them at this point? And then B, we can use that to go into a discussion on their financing because I think financing is a... is both a almost mini catalyst for them, what's happened recently with them, and it's a source of concern. Okay, so so yes, there is M&A. That's very simple. That's, a, that's part of their strategy. It's why uh, in, uh, I think, March or February of this year, 2022, uh, STT and also Sequoia, China, put in more money uh, for them to be able to go forth. And liquidity is not an issue with this company. People will come to you and say, well, this is a very levered company. And I think when we talk about Yep. This next part, we'll come back to why I think that's a false flag. Uh, but when China cracked down on the education companies last year, June, July, August, and the summer, whenever it was, um, what people don't realize is two things happened that are good for GDS. One, the hot money left the market. Private equity has been looking at China for a long time. But basically, if people are like, we can't get our money out, we're not going to put money in. So all of a sudden, GDS, which was competing against all this hot money coming in from other places for the mom and pops, went away. Second, GDS's stock price we mentioned had been $115. Uh, when that rolled over, that was no longer a comp or a benchmark that people were able to use. So it was kind of almost a victim of its own success, where the private guys would say, well, you're getting 20 some odd you know, times in the, in the public market. We want you to buy us for 30. Versus these guys who seek to have an IRR and they execute it, by the way, all the time. Their goal is between 10 and 13% for any project that they're doing. Uh, how do they do it? They basically go out and they get uh, bank funding to pay for 60% of their, um, of their new build spend. So when you look at the net debt to EBITDA today, which is roughly seven times, a little inflated, um, it's not a fair number because you have the debt and none of the denominator. Yep. Right? So you, you get the money, project finance, they're all ring-fenced. Uh, the banks structure it in this you know, 15-year contract so that the payback period, because they understand the cash flows of data centers, takes you two years to build. So you don't have, pay, you have the, the payments are back-weighted, right? And you basically borrow 60% of the data center. You have a guaranteed customer because Alibaba's come to you and said, we want to be in this geography so I can borrow as a... a you know, good paper, if you will. And they go to the banks and they borrow on that. And that's why for that moment in time, on a normalized basis, once a data center is up and running, leverage on a net basis, about three to three and a half times. And that's kind of where I look at it on a constructive basis. So like if this was a pro, you know, pro forma, all the build up. Now that having been said, they're building all the time. It's about 65 uh, fully owned GDS data centers, plus another 15 that they call BOT, but basically building for other people. And um, it's, it's a fascinating conversation that the banks never push back on this issue of, you know, are you too levered? It, it is entirely an equity holder conversation. It, 
it's one of the things, A, it's one of my favorite catalysts, but it's one of the things that I've seen so many companies that do, you know, basically what something similar to what GDS does. They build big things that cost tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, takes two or three years to come online. You know, you've got this huge asset, but I love it because they screen really poorly because, you know, when that asset's about to turn on is right when it, the leverage on the thing looks crazy and particularly something here where it's project financing. So even if for some reason it couldn't start, uh, you know, you could just hand the keys over to the bank. But I also think it speaks to kind of the moat here where these guys want to go build a new data center. Guess what? They've got Alibaba in hand. And as we talked about, once you've got Alibaba, you're going to get a lot of other people who want to co-locate and connect to Alibaba. Whereas if you and I started Randy and Andrew's uh, data center business, right, we wouldn't have Alibaba there. So we couldn't get the financing because we don't have that key customer. We couldn't get anybody else to come in because we don't have Alibaba. So I, I do think and, it just shows- And Alibaba today, because this is important, about 40% of the data center project footprint, whatever you want to call it, 25% of revenue, 10 cent, the other big customer, I think, about 25% of revenue. So it's important to note but remember when I said four or five years when I first looked at it, those two were 65, 70%. Yep. Right? So as the other players, so cloud computing was 70%, like I just said, five years ago. Now it's about 50%. And what's been interesting is the large internet guys are now call it 30%. And the financial players um, are about 20%. And what's happening there is... Essentially, so the, so we all know the Chinese government's been cracking down regulatory and all this stuff. But in part, one of the things that benefits GDS is the Chinese government is trying to stop to, to what the Andrew and Randy uh, data center would be. You and I in our little like closets with servers, right? We wouldn't have a huge footprint, not yet. But it being a server, they want to be able to control the data if they need to access it. So they are forcing the closing of the mom and pops and the consolidations into the bigger players like GDS. So that's actually a virtuous uh, wind behind them. Um, it's, it's also interesting because the banks, the Chinese banks have made a decision that they want to have more things instead of on the mainframe in the house on the cloud. And we talked about how cloud is lagging in China. Well, the Chinese financial institutions are the tip of the spear to say, we're going to be more and more in the cloud. So that's the part that's been really growing. Ironically, that was also had GDS started its business with the financial institutions um, years ago. We should probably talk a little bit about VNet and, and some of the comparative stuff. But what's fascinating is that both uh, GDS and, and 21 Vinet started almost as retail guys. And Olive, uh, GDS saw the writing on the wall where the enterprises wanted to go to the cloud. And they said, we will help facilitate that. 21 Vinet made a different path. They said, we're going to be essentially the white label for IBM and for uh, Microsoft. So if you want Azure in China, it's VNet, okay? But what that means is they basically turn their back on the Chinese cloud players, and now they're playing catch up because people say, well, why is the multiple, even at this 50% unsolicited bid premium, why is the multiple for VNET half of GDS? Well, that's part of the reason. The, the VNet business, not that it's a bad business, it's essentially an infill business, what we said before. Once you're in those tier one cities, you're there. You're not, you're not leaving. And, and, and Alibaba's there and everyone wants to be there. And so it's a very constructive process versus infill, which, yeah, you can do great on project financing and project building, but it's not, it's not the, the, the headline, right? It's very much just filling in the punctuation where it needs to be.
Yep. So let's, you mentioned Trillium and Vinet. I, I, and I think I said earlier, there are two financial things here that I, I think are like many catalysts or many reaffirmations of the business. And one, again, you mentioned it, Sequoia China put in a, a pretty big check into GDS in very, very low cost. I think it's 0.5% convertible bonds. Well, 25 that can, basis points, 0.25. Yeah, yeah. 25 basis points in convertible debt, which, you know, gives them cash to go play with now that multiples have come down and it gives them Sequoia China super reputable firm. It kind of gives them more blessing, right? On top of everything else we talked about. So that's number one. And then number two, probably a little more interesting timely is VNet got an offer a couple of weeks ago to buy to buy the whole company for $8 per share. And at the time the stock had, this was like right at the nadir of the Russia invasion, everything Russia, China just getting sold indiscriminately. I think the stock was 450 or four, but as you and I speak, VNet is trading for about $6 per share and there's an $8 per share offer on there. And, you know, the stock's been hammered very much like GDS over the past year. So I guess the question is like, do you read anything into the VNet offer? Do you read anything into the China's, the Sequoia China convertible financing? And we'll build out from there. So two, two different topics. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The Sequoia China, a feather in the cap. I think STT, the Singapore uh, Technologies Telemedia, which by the way, just for people that aren't as familiar with this region, that's the TMT investment uh, vehicle of Tomasic Holdings. Tomasic Holdings is the Singapore state-owned company that owns like the airline and owns everything. It was founded in the mid-70s. And they first invested in GDS back in 2014 with a 40% stake. Did a follow-up listing at $65 in ADS in 2020. And then, like you just said, did the $620 million convert note with um, with Sequoia. The point is, for anyone that says, how can you trust the numbers, right? Okay. Our job is to determine who can, you and me, Andrews, to determine who can be a good allocator of capital, right? And the only way you know that is with time, right? I've seen these guys now for six or seven years allocating capital really, really well. So I don't worry about that. But then if I like had to say, okay, well, do I trust the auditors? And we'll come to the ADR issue of like auditing the auditors. STT and Sequoia, they're kicking the tires. They're doing the real work. And so for me, sitting in the US, right? I'm not sitting in Hong Kong as we're talking to your audience today. Uh, that gives me a lot of comfort that what I'm seeing and what I'm seeing delivered are real, right? So I think that's um, important. I forget what your second topic was. The second topic. that was so you just covered how STT and Sequoia bless them, and then the second one was the the bid for VNet. Yeah, so I don't know enough about the private equity firm that bid for them if that's a real bid or not. I mean, obviously the ARB guys are discounting it. Um, I do think as well, and maybe this is a good transition to talk about the issues. Uh, there, there's two major issues in in China today. One is the ADR issue, and one is the VIE issue, and I think. Uh, for the purposes of, of painting a full picture, we should just mention both really quickly for your Perfect. audience. Um, I'll start with VIE just because I'm thinking about it. So VIE is a, is a structure uh, that was created uh, in, the, in 2000 for the internet companies. And uh, for, unfortunately, you may not remember the company that used VIEs the most and the best. I remember it. I know. Right. So Enron kind of <laughs> gave the structure a really bad name for good reason. Um, but the reason, the, and, the, and the VIE stands for variable interest entity, right? And the reason that this exists is that in China, the government comes and says in certain sectors, education and internet, most importantly, you can have 0% foreign ownership. 
So what that means is they create a special purpose vehicle. This SPV is based in the Caymans. And you, so if you own Alibaba or JD.com yep. or Tencent today, you do not own a proportional stake in a business like you would if we bought AT&T or Verizon. You know, if you own 10 shares of that, you own whatever the fractional percentage of the company, your minority shareholder, but you own. With a VIE, you own a pro rata proportion of the P&L. They pass it through. But in the case of chapter, you have no rights. The most famous kind of story here was Yahoo Japan owned a big piece of Alibaba. And Jack Ma came in and said, no, nah, we're going to pay. I forget what the number was. It was something crazy, like 6 million or 60 million. It was like a tiny amount. CEO of Yahoo got fired over that, by the way. Like it was not a success story. But the point is there's no recourse. And this is the concern with the VIE is like, there's no dissenters rights, any of the Delaware stuff that you're used to. But- and, and just anyone who's listening, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, but this has been one of the bear cases on China stocks for that has kept people away from China for a long time. Look, Alibaba, Google Alibaba short case. And the first thing that's going to pop up, A, there's going to be some funkiness with their uh, their numbers that people are going to point out. But the main thing is people are going to say, it's a VIE structure. If the insiders there decide that they don't want you to have money, they want that money to go to themselves, they can take it for themselves. And there's really no recourse for that. Right. And so the other... If we're going to do acronyms, the other one that I want to introduce to your audience is WFOE, which is Wholly Foreign Owned Enterprise. And that's for the sectors, data centers are one, where you are allowed foreign ownership. In the case of data centers, you're allowed 50% foreign ownership versus the internet, zero. And then if you look at the actual things that we own, GDS owns its data centers. GDS owns its generators, its turbines, its cooling towers. There's no limit on foreign ownership of those things. So I think that's a really important thing to stress here is this is not Alibaba and JD where we have no proportion ownership of the underlying assets. Yes, 50% restriction, but we still own something. So that's important. The second topic that's certainly topical is the ADR issue, which is in December of 2020, uh, in the midst of all the saber rattling, the US Congress came what became law, something called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which is HFCAA. And what that basically said, I'm, I'm all, I don't know why it always reminds me of that JFK quote, who's going to spy on the spies. But the idea is who's going to audit the auditors, yep. right? So you, if you want to be listed in the US, and by the way, you can go in the SEC and look at the list of companies. It's public. It's only about 30 names right now, but it's going to grow. And you can go in and say, how do we audit the auditor's working papers? Uh, If you miss that checklist for three consecutive years, you have to delist. Uh, GDS has not filed its annual report yet. It's 20F. That will happen by the end of this month. We fully expect they will be on that list a few days after that, starting in May. So that would start the clock. It's worth noting, just as an asterisk, that currently there is talks Uh, In June of 2021, so six months later, the Senate passed the accelerating the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. So AHFCAA, which is to say instead of a three-year put up or shut up window, it would be a two-year window. That has not passed the House, but it's something that should be on the radar of people uh, here. It's an easy political win. Right. Like it feels like it's probably going to nobody's out here saying, hey, we need to give Chinese companies trade in the U.S. We need to give them more rights and more power. Yep. But when you look at kind of what there's two different things. Right. So so this is fundamentally uh, 
a technical issue that's been created by a geopolitical problem, right? Like if this was a actually technical issue created by a technical problem, you could fix it very simply. This is geopolitics, right? And, and you and I can't invest knowing how geopolitics play out. But what I can do is position myself to know that there's a runway or an outlet if this goes sideways. Can I, can I put, so just to clarify, what would happen here is the, the worst case scenario and what you're about to talk to is GDS and several other Chinese stocks could be kicked off the NYSE, kicked off the NASDAQ if they, they don't meet these requirements, the worst case. And what you're about to say is if that happened for GDS particularly, there is an out here. Right. And the out I mentioned at the very beginning is Hong Kong. So when you look at that list of 30 names, only about 15% of them have a secondary listing. And at the end of 2020, GDS raised $2 billion US, huge raise in Hong Kong. And I know that it's easy in our seats to say, oh, well, maybe that's a secondary market because it's a secondary listing. The uh, onerous process of going public, it's not fun going public in any market, by nope. the way. And in Hong Kong, it is equally painful. So this is as uh, valid of a market. Secondly, the actual transaction process to switch your ADR. So 190 million ADRs, roughly speaking, at um, at IPO for Hong Kong, there was, I think, 20 million of those were in Hong Kong. Today, 35. So another 15 million ADRs have switched over to Hong Kong. And then you say, why? Well, maybe it's people like you and me that send emails at ridiculous hours. We won't tell the audience. Like, we're workers, right? We're grinders. And so maybe there's people who want to be able to trade longer. Maybe there's some structural reasons. Maybe there's some parapet trading issues. I don't. The point is, you pay de minimis fee. We were talking like $20. It's not a big number. De minimis yep. fee, and about 48 hours later, you are up and running. So the risk of delisting for me, for GDS, is making sure my clients can settle it. I don't worry about there being a fungible security that I can trade. Versus the other 85% need to start the process. And we mentioned the other two Chinese data centers. We should say Chin Data, CD, for example, is actively talking about when can we start our Hong Kong process because we see the writing on the wall. We need to know, but you need two years of run-up. Uh, the reason that, so then the natural question becomes, well, why wouldn't GDS just drop its US listing today and do Hong Kong today? Chinese data center kind of makes sense. The answer is, um, while, while it's pretty frictionless, the only real difference is they need to do an IFRS versus gap reconciliation, and they need to reveal on their directors certain holdings. Um, takeover law, like much of the countries outside of the US, takeover rules in Hong Kong are much more onerous than they are here. And I mentioned before, they're in Singapore and China and STPs in the middle and maybe something, I don't know, but maybe something will happen with some shared data centers. That would be a lot harder if their primary listing was Hong Kong. But when I talk about kind of the potential risk, and we've done a lot of work on it because we have clients that own, AD, like, own GDS, so we need to make sure that we have a, a, something that trades. This seems to me much like the VIE example with GDS as a non-issue and more of a headline thing than anything else. Perfect. So look, I think we, this is a tough thing with you, Randy. We, we've already hit the hour mark, but I, you know, I think we've done a really nice job of covering everything that we talked before this, you and I kind of wanted to hit on this podcast, but I, I just want to make sure we wrap it all up in a nice bow, right? We've covered a lot of the risks. We've covered the multiple arbitrage, covered, but you know, just real quick, why should people, there's China risk here. This is trading cheap. There, there's big growth. You know, what do you think that people should be thinking about when they're dump, jumping in here to look at it? Why should people be get excited about the potential to look at the stock and maybe invest in it? 
Yeah, and, and why I was flagging and saying, hey, Andrew, it's time, right? Yep. Like, this is the moment. And the answer to that is pretty simple. It seems to me that a lot of the things that have impacted the stock down, and I'm not saying it's going to go back to $115 tomorrow, but I'm saying it's gone too far down, um, are things that will resolve themselves in the next couple of quarters or certainly in the next couple of years, which is to say the geopolitical risk. COVID at some point will become endemic versus pandemic. Uh, the regulatory environment, China, I'm not convinced China doesn't fold on the ADR issue, for example. By the way, if China says we want to have you know, an internet, we want to have capital market access to the rest of the world, you know, China, I think this is important to remember. The, the worst decade for China was in the 1960s to 1976, before Nixon opened it, when they had no friends in the world. That is, and they remember the Communist Party, we forget, while there is an ideology, they're pragmatists, right? And if you look at the lesson of Russia, um, I, 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 I pulled my, my, my quarterly letter here because this is what I, I think it's relevant, which is a Chinese confrontation with the West, economic or military will be wildly irrational, but so was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Tellingly, the Ukraine war led in March to a large scale capital flight from dot, 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 China, right? And so like we have put all of this onus onto them. And if you view the likelihood of a land grab in China, of Taiwan as low, you today now have a very large margin of safety with a proven management team that has executed wonderfully project by project with great backers, including their customers like Alibaba and Tencent and their investors. Like we talked about STT and we talked about Sequoia. Um, I don't see, as I look at the space, another company with the potential growth profile that these guys have for the next three to five years. The only other thing I'll add, I thought that was wonderful. The only other thing I'll add is, this is just me personally. I just love, this is an infrastructure play. I love infrastructure plays like cable and data center stuff where it's big, hard assets that basically a couple of people can, but it's really hard to recreate. Like you can look and see those assets in the ground and they get network effects, right? Where a competitor who says, oh, I want to go buy hundred acres right next door to you and build the same thing. Well, guess what? Yours isn't as valuable as mine because mine already has all the network effects and connections and everything there. And I just love those things. And, you know, this is, this plays right into that, right? You, you mentioned the multiple arbitrage versus what a lot of really sophisticated private equity investors play. You get this big thing and you just know it's going to be there, right? If you believe data usage is going to stay there, there's a, there's a big tailwind for this thing. But uh, and, and the phrase that comes to mind as you wrap up is, God only made so much waterfront. Yeah. We're on the waterfront. And so I, I can't tell you third quarter 22 is that, no. What I can tell you is if you think China internet's going to grow over time, this is the play. Perfect, perfect. Well, we are going to do a separate video real quick right after this. We're going to update Amorous and maybe a little bit of Realytics, but we'll, we'll stop the video right here. People can go check out that uh, separate video. But Randy, thank you so much for coming on and talking GDS. And you and I will stay on and we'll talk in one second. Okay.